On this episode of Her Wild Outdoors, Stephanie Harrett joins me, and we're going to be talking about homesteading. She is an avid hunter who's been hunting for 20 plus years, and we get into that a little bit as well, seeing the evolution of hunting through her time in that community. But let's get in here, let's listen, and keep us posted on what you take from this. It's a great episode. Okay, everybody, thank you for joining us for another Her Wild Outdoors episode. Stephanie Harrett is with me today from, and you're on the Oregon coast today, but normally you live in Washington State, right? Yeah, yeah, I live in central Washington, mm-hmm. north central. You are mm-hmm. you are escaping the heat right now. Yes, we have in Washington and in Oregon, too. I Like two days ago, it was 112 degrees in Portland, but... Um, I, it's unseasonably hot throughout the state out here. I think today at home, it's slotted to be 115 and it's just, oh, it's an oppressive heat. And so we found an opening just by chance, luckily at an Airbnb down here on the Oregon coast, where I spent a lot of time in my youth and we're down here escaping. (laughs) Well, I'm glad you're finding the reprieve. We... Mm-hmm. We were talking before we hit record and the South right now where we are, we're having kind of a mild beginning to our summer. So I am not complaining, but I am feeling for all of you in the Northwest that uh, are struggling with this because I know it's not just like we have air conditioners because we are used to it, but there are a lot of people in the Midwest to the Western coast that they don't, they aren't used to this. Right. Exactly. We're not used to this climate. And then, I mean, it's you, what you're probably feeling where you feel for us, the people who are unprepared and stores are sold out of air conditioners and fans and all these things, but you guys are feeling for us, like the way that we felt for the South and like, and like Texas with their big snowstorms, Mm -hmm. you're like, Oh my God, are prepared for snow they don't they've never seen it before they don't know how to drive in it maybe they don't they can't keep their houses warm enough it Mm -hmm. was it's this weird we've been having some weird weather (laughs) we have been that's a whole nother podcast but it it has definitely i think created some empathy across uh the states of being able to kind of feel for each other and and reach out and uh, at least say, Ted Gummit, I'm sorry. I know that that stinks. Um, yeah. And uh, it, yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, I'm excited that you have joined me today. We, I reached out to you because you're a homesteader. And yeah. that <laughs> freaking rocks. And I would love to hear more about that. But tell me a little bit kind of introduce yourself to us and go back to kind of when the outdoors became a part of your life and how it has influenced your life along the way. Yeah. Um, yeah. So my name's Stephanie and my, um, I live in Washington. I've lived in Washington my whole life, um, different parts of the state, but we've, I was kind of born and raised on the Western side, um, and have recently moved to the central part. Um, I'm in my thirties, married, have a little two-year-old running around, which is an adventure all in itself. Yes. (laughs) I was introduced to the outdoors from the get-go. I was raised in a very outdoorsy family, raised in a hunting family. My mom didn't hunt, but my dad did. And growing up before I was at hunting age or an age where my mom would allow me to go hunt. Mm -hmm. Um, we would all do family camp trips together. And my mom enabled that. And when I did start hunting, um, she always enabled those things and helped prepare me for time taken off school to go on hunting trips with my dad. And so, although my dad was the primary hunting resource in our house. My mom did a fantastic job of enabling it, which is, which was awesome. Yeah. I don't think, I think people talk so much about, well, you need 
a hunting influence, hunting influence, hunting influence, passing it on. Mm -hmm. And I think that they forget the strength that comes from the supporting backbone of those who might not necessarily hunt, but they totally Mm -hmm. support it and enable it. Yes. They look the behind the scenes stuff that you forget about uh, to make sure that those things happen and make it possible for you to do it. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I agree. I started hunting when I was 12. Um, I had been asking for a couple of years at that point to do it, but my mom really wanted to make sure that I was old enough and had enough emotional depth to like appreciate what I was doing and to be able to, you know, cause obviously in a perfect world, things go right all the time, all the time. but there are, there, you know, sometimes an animal, you have to shoot it more than one time or it sometimes it takes, depending on how close you were to it, it takes a little bit for the animal a minute or two for the animal to expire or, mm-hmm. you know, and she wanted to make sure that I was emotionally mature enough to deal with those things so that I didn't come back with a negative feeling about hunting. She wanted any experience I had to be positive or be able to be turned into a positive. So she made me wait to, st- uh, she, the, her and my dad <laughs> together, but, um, they made uh, me wait until I was 12 years old to take my hunter's ed. And then I hunted that year. So, but I'd been going along with my dad for years before that, just not carrying a weapon. Yeah. I think that that's a valuable lesson to learn, to take and then apply as a parent. We (laughs) had a rule. I mean, my son took his first year at nine, but he was a little bit more prepared for it than my daughter who took hers at 12. Um, and I think that we both, I had a rule that I needed them to see the fruition of a hunt from beginning to end before they took a life themselves because of that reason. I needed them to see the whole process and then make a decision because it's going to affect them even more when it's their trigger that they're pulling versus watching yes. so get- with your mm-hmm. well it is it is different even you wouldn't think that it would be so drastically different to have a child just sitting right next to you but and seeing it as opposed to pulling the trigger themselves but it 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 definitely is I, I think my husband and I have the same our son is only two but we were like he's I, I said he's got to be able to see and he comes on hunt trips with us as it is. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so yeah. So like he he will he will get the opportunity to see multiple harvests being taken. But it's it's one of those things of like you we need to see him have him see the whole thing. Mm-hmm. I, it's just so he, it's I I think it's a rite of passage. I think that instilling the value of taking a life versus the I mean, we, we have people who will take their kids out when they're three years old and, in quotations, hunt. Uh, mm-hmm. And I, there's, I'm not going to down anybody who does that. I just think that there's value in teaching the responsibility and the ethical side of taking an animal's life. And uh, yeah, that's, that's, our, that's what we have always rolled with. Yeah. And that's, I think that's, I, there's so many ways to do it and everybody not only hunts, but parents differently, but I'm in full agreement. So that is the, you can't see the air quotes, but the, the right way mm-hmm. yeah. is make sure that you really teach the value of that life that you're taking and how much you need to respect that life and, you know, make an shot and treat and honor that life by field learning to field dress well and save as many parts of the animals you can mm-hmm. and, and really optimize what that what the animal is giving you yeah and not so. rush it for a kid i think that that's the worst thing you can do is rush a kid into into that i think it's almost as bad and this is i might lose some of the listeners here and i might not but <laughs> it's almost as bad as 
those video games where you're just shooting constantly and it kind of numbs that grief that should come from taking a life. And so if you're starting too early and there's no value, there's no, uh, there's not giving that space to process grief because I still feel grief when I take an animal's life. So if you don't allow that time, if you don't allow that process, then you're teaching them that that isn't as important as celebrating the death. And there's, there are parts to hunting that are very important to keep, uh, to keep separate. Right. Exactly. And there's, I mean, processing grief is such a grief or disappointment Mm -hmm. or discomfort. It's such a, it's such an important skill Mm -hmm. that they can other aspects of their life later on and not learning at an appropriate time and an appropriate pace, how to work through those feelings of discomfort can hinder you even later in life in a lot of other ways than just hunting. Agreed. Agreed. There are so many lessons that, I mean, I learned because I didn't hunt until later, but there are so many lessons going out each time that don't just apply to hunting. Like you said, they, it applies to so much more, whether it is, (laughs) uh, like you said, processing through disappointment, processing through, you know, did I make the right choice? And I'm not just talking, pulling a trigger I'm I'm talking did I make the right choice in the spot that I picked did it did I make the right mm-hmm. choice in you know the wind totally messed me up I I should have made a different choice like there are so many oh, things yeah. that you take from that and then apply to communicating with a significant other being a parent mm-hmm. working a job all of these yeah. things can then go forth because it's personality growth not just hunting growth. Yeah. And just like in hunting and hunting is great because the <laughs> your mistakes are just laid right there on the table. You blew that animal out or you, you know, yeah. you jumped it out of its or it, you blew the stock or whatever it was. And it's funny, the more experiences you have with that. And I'm constantly being reminded every time that if I have a hunt where I feel like I had a failure moment <laughs> and mm-hmm. I, just wound up about it. I'm like, oh, I should have known better. I should have known better. I should have done this. I shouldn't have done that. I shouldn't have gotten such tunnel vision. I shouldn't have gotten, you know, maybe I should have moved more aggressively instead of being more reserved. And my dad always reminds me, he goes, he goes, yeah, he goes in that situation. Definitely. He goes, but the next time, if you were to replay that situation, exactly in that same spot with that same animal, a second time, trying to go about it, you'd, it, it would, it would have to have a different outcome. Yeah. You know, you would have to have a technique because the same, you know, you, what you did may have worked it. You probably did it because it worked successfully a previous time, but surprise, you have to call an audible. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. You know, it's probably not going to work the next time. So it's all experiences that build on each other, but that's where the luck component of hunting comes in. It's <laughs> like, well, I get lucky is the right way to move on this animal or (laughs) at this time around, or is this animal going to throw me, throw me for a loop? Yeah, no, I agree. I think that, uh, I think that a lot of times flexibility (laughs) is what Mm -hmm. we learn. Flexibility to uh, adaptability. Yeah. Yes. (laughs) No, I agree. Back from failure, Mm -hmm. like being able to, like, being able to blow a stock and not just throw your hands up in the air and say, Oh, my morning's ruined. I'm going to go back to the truck, you know, uh, being able to bounce back and say, damn it, I blew that one. I can either, maybe I can try and get on that animal again. Or if I go a hundred yards, the other direction, if there's an animal over there, it didn't hear this one. Mm -hmm. So go over there and just, and being able to bounce back and be able to mentally reset and go, okay, I'm going to try again. Yeah. I agree. So going from a hunting background into the next phase of your life. So starting as a kid, as a hunter, but then moving into adulthood, what was that like? Mm-hmm. Um, it was interesting. And like I said, I've been hunting since the time I was 12 and 
this will, this year I counted <laughs> and it'll be the, my 22nd year hunting. And in those 20 plus years, I've seen so much change in the hunting industry specifically mm-hmm. with like the rise of social media and being a woman. Like yeah. when I was a kid, there was, <laughs> there, there's, there's no, like if there was youth hunting clothes, mm-hmm. it was either t-shirts like cotton t-shirts or like really big puffy like you're gonna stick a kid in a in a stand and they have to stay warm type of clothes and being from the northwest I did a lot of I've only I've only ever done DIY hunting on public land yeah um so I've never really had a um a food plot or a private land or tree stand or blind type of experience um And so a lot of the stuff that we do out here is really, it's technical terrain and a lot of hiking and generally from the Western side of the state, hiking in heavy torrential downpours (laughs) and 20 plus years ago, it was kind of, you were hitting the beginning of the Gore-Tex phase and the end of the wool phase. So it was kind of, there wasn't a ton of technical clothing available. There was definitely no women's clothes. Oh no, uh, no. Yeah. Nothing at all. And like, as, as a 12 year old girl, I was having to look through, like trying to find the smallest size men's pants I could find, which was like a size 30, which, you know, luckily enough right now that fits me great. So old clothes from 20 years ago that are in great condition. But I, you know, as a 12 year old girl, I was swimming in them, but it was what I had to deal with. Mm -hmm. So I think, you know, I think some people will see what's available these days and get a little grumpy that, you know, women's lines aren't as extensive as men's lines in some brands. Um, or they, Oh, I wish this one in a women's size, or I wish they cut this one different. And I'm, I'm just over here going, wow, there's so many brands of women's clothes. So it's, it's fantastic that it's out there. Mm-hmm. Um, I love, I love being able to walk into a Cabela's or Bass Pro Shop and see faces like, you know, Eva Shockey or Christy Titus and see that there's some kind of female representation yeah. out there. And oh, I, yeah. so helpful for young girls, like who might be interested to not feel like, oh, this is a, it's a weird thing that I'm doing. It's not an, it's, you know, it's not a normal thing because most women don't do this. There's actually representation out there now and social media makes not only those people, but people with a lot less followers or whatever accessible to you. So there are lots of resources. So I think as, as an adult, I'm able to see that and appreciate that for, I, I don't have a daughter. I have a son, but being able to even have him exposed to the fact that, yeah, it's a normal thing and not just in my household. It's not just my mom that hunts. Like there's moms and daughters and sisters, and there's all kinds of people who go hunting and it's Mm -hmm. just a normal thing. It is. I, I I think that we kind of teeter, right? As women, Mm -hmm. we teeter on, we need more, but we're grateful for what we have. Uh, I mean, I even, you know, back 2000, 13 when I was hunting and was wearing youth camo and <laughs> car like <laughs> all, just whatever would fit to get me out there uh right. things have changed even so much so in less than a decade that I still have to take that opportunity to say I'm grateful I'm grateful yes. for how far it's come do we still have a little ways to go sure but that's that's science. That's if if you apply it to anything out there, that's just growth. You're learning your market and you're learning what needs to be changed over time. Is it going to change without voices speaking up saying what they need? No. So continue to yeah. do that. But I think that that's not a hill I want to die on. <laughs> yeah. And one thing that people don't take into consideration, I think it's, it's really hard sometimes to remove yourself from the personal point of view of like, I need more. Mm-hmm. I need something that be better or women need more. Women need, need equal representation and all of these things. But I've actually spoken to some people, my, like short conversations, but yeah. I've spoken to people in the clothing industry and they said, you know, like 
we, we really are working mm-hmm. on women's line. Um, I know I spoke to, I, t- I can't, I don't remember who it was, but I, um, spoke to someone, I think with Kuyu about yeah. women, when they were going to get more technical clothing for women. Cause I, 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 I fit into some of their smaller men's pant sizes and I, they, they fit me great. So I have no real qualms, but I'm eager to see what they come up with when they, they eventually make the move to women's clothes or if they do. And the person that I spoke to said, you know, the thing with women's clothing is it's so much different from men's because men, it's just, you can kind of go brand to brand and a 36 or, you know, 40, whatever, if you get a 36 size, how it's going to fit you. And all my girls out there know you try on a size six jeans at old Navy versus target versus all different. different. And so it's trying to find, and, and in hunting, there is not one single demographic. There's so many diverse body shapes Mm -hmm. of women who hunt as well, that it's just kind of a, their clothing companies, I can appreciate the complicated situation they're in of like, what type of shape are we going to make our clothes imitate? Yeah. Especially in the beginning when you're starting a a women's line, it, Mm -hmm. you're investing a whole lot of money into something that you hope women like, that you hope Mm -hmm. fit women, right? But do you invest all of it in all of the sizes, the first go around, probably not. You kind of need yeah. some test sizes that that fit for a little while and you can build up a following. But I mean, I can only imagine how difficult it is. I've even talked to men who are smaller, who have a difficult mm-hmm. time finding uh, clothing across the board. So I, it, it really, there are important and valuable things that come from a good fit. I think over a good fit, I want quality. I want yeah. wind breaking. I want waterproof. I like above the perfect fit. I don't need to have my shape right. flattered out there. I need something <laughs> that works. Exactly. And there are certain situations where if you're hunting, say in extreme cold or extreme wetness Mm -hmm. that's also cold it's a good fit is can be important and can keep you warmer by a couple days but at the same time like I I've had a couple people ask me about like well what do you like for women's hunting clothes and specifically for like a northwest hunter and I'm like you need to find something waterproof Mm -hmm. but you have you also have to take I, I got a piece of advice early on that I've kind of carried with me is like in the Northwest, you're going to get wet, but you're either going to get wet from the outside in or the inside out mm. because if you have something that's truly waterproof, you're going to sweat, moving, you're going to sweat. So you have to decide, am I getting wet from the inside out or the outside in? What's it going to be? And so, you know, I've had, I've tried a lot of different types of waterproof things and I have kind of landed on a couple couple products that I really like for waterproofness, but it's, it was, it's been such a trial and error <laughs> through, yeah. throughout my career. And it's been, and, but it's been great because I'm on this kind of, I'm, I've been able to ride this wave mm-hmm. over the last 20 of the technological advances and just how great gear and fabric and technology has become to make so many different types of options and people are trying new things and new materials and and it's been it's been fun to feel like I'm experimenting as the industry experiments so it's yeah it's been neat I love that part of it. I love the part where you and I can talk where you've had 20 plus years of experience and I've had eight and Mm -hmm. we can sit here and completely empathize with each other, but also completely be excited about where things are going. And yeah. and I think that the worst thing we can do is whine about it. That's the mm-hmm. worst thing that we can do. And yeah. that's not going to get stuff fixed. It's not going to get stuff changed. It's going to be getting out there and, and trying on these things and trying products that that are coming out and supporting the companies who are doing it right. The companies. Right. And give feedback. Yes. Um, 
yeah, finding ways to give feedback to those companies on what you liked, what you didn't like, and yes. those things. That yeah. is super important. Um, yeah. And they, I don't think a lot of people think to do that. Um, and it's, it's important to put your voice and your experience. And even if it's almost like reviewing a restaurant, you, you can go online and look at restaurant reviews and the majority of them are terrible mm-hmm. because when you have a good experience, you don't think about giving the positive accolades. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. And if you have a good experience and said, man, I really liked the way this fit. I really liked the, you know, the way that this accommodated me and even in pulling it from a female's perspective and those, that really helps those companies and it helps other people think, Oh, maybe I'll try it too. Yeah. Cause have, it worked for this woman. Have you been following, do you follow Hannah, the plus size hunter? I do. Yes. And <laughs> she's I been love doing it. her ear reviews with, yes. you know, what fit doesn't, she's been losing weight, which is fantastic. Yeah. Like, you know, more power to anyone who's setting goals and achieving them. But it's, it's been, it's been really fun to, to watch her journey yes. as well. I do yeah. like, and I think that she goes into what you were just saying, the reviews that she does on, on things that she tries on aren't just, well, this doesn't work. This doesn't work. This doesn't work. This doesn't work because negativity isn't, I, it, it's really hard to only take in the negative. I like hearing, well, this works. This would work better if it was this way. If I went a different size on this, this is how this would work. It's more troubleshooting versus putting something down. And that's exactly what you were just talking about. It's providing feedback. People are listening. Companies are actually listening to what she has to say and growing from it. And I think that that goes across any product out there, whether it's boots or knives or guns or whatever, without feedback, those companies don't know how to evolve better. Right. And And I think that a lot of the people who have, who do those types of reviews and give that information, it feels like they tend to be, I guess on the newer side of hunting, I'm not Mm -hmm. necessarily brand but the newer side, because they're able to look at things with a more critical eye Mm -hmm. um, and think like, well, it's missing this or it's missing that. And they're able to really, and, you know, I, there are certain things that I'll give like, Hey, I love this jacket or I love these pants or like, there's a certain type of pant I absolutely swear by, but it's, um, I, it's so hard for me to actually write a full review for certain things. Cause I'm like, I grew up hunting in wool pants that were my dad's from the seventies. <laughs> you just use anything that gets you out there. <laughs> exactly. I had wool pants when I was a kid and like, Holy moly. those were, when those got wet, you stayed warm, but they were heavy as heck. So yeah. Was, no kidding. Like, better than that. So it's, it's, it's nice to see that per- as someone who is, just thankful for anything. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. The lighter weight, I'm, but the more functional and yeah, it's to- I, yeah totally different. And that, I think that that is, we need that balance. We need, yeah, it's a good perspective from mm-hmm. both sides of it. Yeah. I really appreciate people like Hannah's perspective and yeah. being, especially like I'm, I'm not, I, I am a smaller person and I really do appreciate, like, I, I appreciate the fact that I'm able to fit, even though I have had a child, I'm not very hippie. <laughs> so, you know, I, I do appreciate the certain, I guess it's kind of a privilege that I have that I can fit into men's pants that aren't cut to really accommodate right. curves of a woman. And it's, it's really good for, I really appreciate seeing that women still are having those troubles uh, in certain brands, mm-hmm. you know, because it's, it's a good indicator to me that even though I feel like certain things in the hunted hunting industry have gone a long way, like you said, there is more work that can be done. So yeah. I, I to see more things and more companies grow and have more women feel truly comfortable in the gear that they can get. I love that. I love that. <laughs> I do. <laughs> now, now going from hunting into mm-hmm. homesteading, how, oh, yeah. what made this switch over? What 
changed <sighs> from just being in the outdoors and hunting when you wanted to into living a sustainable life where you are now? Yeah. Well, I mean, there's lots of factors that go into it. And if you, it's funny, my mom's, my mom's boyfriend is, he, I think he just turned 73 this year. And so when he hears the word homesteading, he gets his bristles all up. He goes, homesteading around anymore. You know, it's not <laughs> the land and all this. You own your property and you own a house. I'm just like, okay. But okay. so <laughs> modern homestead, I guess, is what I'm kind of doing. And I'm, I'm definitely still in the just getting started stage, but it's kind of, I feel it feels really familiar, like hunting to where you never really feel like you're good at it. <laughs> and you never really feel like you're doing it right. Which means you're probably doing it right. <laughs> We're probably doing it right. If you have the wherewithal to stand back and go, mm-hmm. oh man, keep messing up. But the important thing is being able to move, like in hunting, is it really a failure if you choose to move forward and learn from it? So are you going, you know, are you going to research why your broccoli died? You know, are you going to research what bug it was that possibly killed, you know, your onions or whatever the, whatever the issue is, you know, are you going to try and figure out how to mitigate that problem down the road? And are you going to try it again? Are you going to branch out and try new things? Like, what are you going to do? Um, so it's, it's a very easy leap, you know, and everybody who hunts knows that feeling and that pride of being able to take a wild animal that, you know, has not been fed a lot of GMOs and corn, like Mm -hmm. corn and grain, all this stuff about grass fed beef and how much better it is and how much healthier those animals are. And to know that you not only harvested the most non-GMO free range, I don't know, gluten-free, whatever animal, (laughs) (laughs) you not only did that, but you did it with your own two hands Mm -hmm. and it reconnects to your meat and where it comes from. And so it's like, why not extend that to your vegetables mm-hmm. and the other thing, bro, and just extend, extend that joy that you felt and bring that same feeling of joy into more aspects of your life, be it raising your own animals for meat, be it growing a fruit tree, canning things, drying things, or just eating stuff fresh, um, taking more control and personal responsibility over your health through the avenues of food. Yeah. So, um, I kind of got into it based out of those desires. Um, I got into it because even though I'm, I'm a stay at home mom right now. And I think that you can even hear, I think with that (sighs) deep breath, (laughs) it's a heavy load. (laughs) Yeah. But I try really hard mm-hmm. not to say I'm just a stay-at-home mom. I think a lot of moms fight that hard to discount the job that they have because it is such a hard job. But it doesn't feel it doesn't feel like it's enough for society. Mm-hmm. It feels like it's not tangible for people. And although I I do I do work some small jobs. Um, I coach I coach high school pole vault and I coach CrossFit. Mm -hmm. Um, but those are by any means, anything that would be a career and they're kind of in the minimum wage and the, the high school pole vault stuff that's seasonal, but, um, they're just kind of small, odd jobs. And I, I don't know, I'm sure I have some kind, I'm sure I have like ADD or ADHD or something that being able to focus very long (laughs) in one thing, but I've never really been a person who gravitated towards there's like this, there's this one thing that I want to do with my life and I want to do this for a job and it's going to fulfill me every day. Like Mm. my husband is a firefighter and he's incredibly passionate about that. And that's his career. And he pursues, you know, growth in his, in his career and takes on additional training and additional, like he's always trying to grow what he's doing in that field. And I've never felt that way about like a big, big job, you know, like a career type course job. So I, I think that the homesteading thing felt to me like a tangent, something that was tangible. Although I'm not planning to do, to garner a bunch of 
income, like direct revenue from my practices, that feeling of, well, you know, if I'm raising my, we haven't had to buy eggs in two years. Yeah. You know, yeah, it's, that's fantastic. And, and we even have extras to give away to friends and mm-hmm. literally spread wealth, you know, and it's been fantastic to do that and feel like I have something tangible to give and something tangible to provide. And I'm not just feeling like I'm providing help on the financial side, because if you come from a family where there's kids and a husband who has two hollow legs, you know that food costs get real high. Yeah. Real I've fast. got two teenage. Well, I've got one preteen and one teenager. Yes, I feel that. And yeah. but I think even going back to what you were saying about like I'm probably a lot like you in the jobs that I have had along my lifetime. It has been a little bit here, a little bit there. I it I have needed growth. I've needed challenge. I like to mix things up and go from one thing to the next. And I think that what you are doing allows that within one big thing. It allows mm. the movement from meat to to groceries to so you're handling kind of all of that and I I think that's pretty cool. Yeah, it's really neat and it's really I think one of the cool things about it is you know, obviously as hunters we want to pass on hunting to our mm-hmm. kids and that really where our meat comes from and the responsibility that you have yes to ethically and you know and to find that balance that a lot of people who don't hunt or are anti-hunting seem to not understand that you can take an animal's life and love it too 100 percent. yeah you can love that animal deeply and still choose to take its life and have its life benefit the rest of your family but so that's we're teaching not only that, but, and, and hunting has had such a huge upswing in the last couple of years mm-hmm. and fantastic. And I love it. I love to see it. Um, I don't so much love seeing all of the orange and all the bodies out in the woods when I'm trying to get away from other hunters, but I love that people are branching out and trying it. But I feel like gardening, although in the, with the pandemic, with people staying home, more people started to do a little bit more gardening. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. But I, Overall, it's kind of, it's kind of been a dying skill because we haven't had to garden to provide for our families for a long time. You know, it's, that's industrial agriculture has done such a good job. You can find pretty much anything you want any day of the year in a grocery store. And it takes a lot of work to do that stuff. It's been, yeah, I was really passionate about the idea of, my kid knowing kind of what it, not only what it takes to grow a vegetable, but sort of to prepare him for the counter argument that you hear from a lot of anti-hunting or the, the vegan type community of, well, you can just eat vegetables. You can just eat this. And I'm, it's like, well, if you really want to be sustainable, do you actually understand how much work it takes to grow enough broccoli for you to eat in a year? And do you know how many plants that takes? Like I, it's, it's pretty interesting to talk to people who've never really grown their own food and say, yeah, you know, we've got 16 tomato plants and people think, oh my God, 16, that's so many. No, no. Really project out how far stuff actually goes. Like how many jars of tomato sauce or salsa you can make from those. It's so minuscule on what you'll use for a year, just as one person. So to think about scale of agriculture and to really have an appreciation for like, like, yeah, I don't, you know, if you were really trying to sustain yourself, you couldn't do it on just vegetables. No, I've got, I've got six broccoli plants. Yeah, no, you'd have to. This is, I have six broccoli plants out back, right? Six. That's like two meals. Yep. Exactly. And <laughs> if you har- you harvest the main head of broccoli, if you leave the plant for a little while, there's little side shoots that'll come up that yes. just look like in little bite-sized florets, which are great. But it's like, yeah, you think about how many heads of broccoli uh-huh. do you use to feed your family dinner in a one lot. night? You know, probably four heads. Mm-hmm. And yeah, and 
when, and you've, you're growing broccoli, like you said, right now, those plants get enormous and you think of how much space that takes up and, and you think about all of those things and all of the, the space and the time and all of the stuff it takes. And you think, wow, like you get, you really get an appreciation for the work that goes. I now appreciate as an adult having a small backyard garden. I appreciate Mm -hmm. the time that my grandfather put into his garden growing up. Just watching, I could walk up. He had it on this big hill. And so everything kind of came down this hill. And he had specific order, of course, of how he did everything. But it was, I value the time that he put into it greater now as an adult having a garden to his ability to can all of his green beans for the next year and feeding a family of six and still having green beans for the year. Like what the heck? He killed it out there and he was a firefighter as well. So it, I knew like his work, his job, even when he retired, the amount of time that he spent on that garden in order to provide wonderful meals for us to provide uh, the canned vegetables that we had for the rest of the year. I just, it amazes me um, Mm. how much he loved us to do that. And I know he loved to do it as well, but you have to, I mean, we all know now the value that went into that wasn't just because he loved gardening. It was because he loved the people around him. Yep. And he loved sharing, he loved providing that high quality of food. Yes. Middleman, there is no, uh, you know, what does this can have BPA? Like, is there sodium? What is this soy? Like, what is the, what is this X, Y, and Z um, that's in this food? There's no question because Mm -hmm. you know, you grew it with your own hands and put it into a jar with your own hands and you're pulling it back out. And it's just being able to share those things. Like I, um, not only did I grow my own tomatoes last year, but I have a friend in a nearby town. It's actually a friend of my dad's that lives out there, but they grow. Oh my God. It makes our tomato garden look like a joke, but they grow a <laughs> amount of tomatoes. And what they do is they actually pre COVID. I don't, they didn't do it last year. So they had a bunch extra, but what they would do is take all these tomatoes to a fancy restaurant in Seattle and trade it for like credit. Oh yeah. Like a, them a bunch of tomatoes so they could advertise having farm fresh farm Mm -hmm. locally you know organic tomatoes all of that and they'd get like you know a 300 gift card to the restaurant or something so it was they they used to do that but last year i he said hey do you want some extra tomatoes because i you know i don't have any and i said i have a ton and i have no place to unload them and i said yeah sure that would be great how many tomatoes um do you think he goes oh you know i'm just i'm putting some in boxes and i think I think you're getting 40 to 60 pounds. Holy and I was like, oh, moly. Yes. Okay. Yeah. And, and this was, mind you. And I, I said, yeah, sure. I'll take them and I'll make salsa. And then he told me how many I was getting. And I had this moment of, and I'm going elk hunting in a week. <laughs> you <laughs> like, have to was, account for the time yeah, that you don't. It was right. Mm-hmm. Exactly. It was one of those things where I was like, oh, yeah, sure. We'll take some extra tomatoes and I'll make some salsa. And then I was like, oh, crap. I'm going elk hunting in a week. And so I have a week-ish to make 60 pounds of tomatoes worth of salsa. Holy moly. <laughs> and can it and make it, you know, so that this doesn't go to waste. Because I tried to give some chickens, my chickens, some tomatoes. And they just did not like the tomatoes at all. So I was like, well, that's not an... That's not an option. Well, with vegetables, it's just like with meat when you get it in. If you don't, if you don't utilize it in that moment, one way or another, whether it's eating it or prepping it to keep it, Mm -hmm. you're going to lose it. And that is waste. And when you know the value of the time that went into it, you know that there's, there's no way you can waste it. Yeah. It almost physically hurts. Yes. (laughs) Yes. Yeah. But we still are working through that salsa. I think I made close to six gallons of salsa between <laughs> their between yeah between their salsa and my salsa and like their tomatoes and my tomatoes and tomatillos. I made 
all kinds of different salsas. And, but I'm tell, I tell you what, like in the, in the winter time, being able to pull out a jar of fresh salsa that had all of those fresh flavors in it from our garden. Yes. And then oh, as we come into, you know, summer when you want to have margaritas and tacos on the deck or whatever, being able to pull out a jar of salsa that you made last year and go, ah, this is this cool. And being able to pull it out for guests and be like, we made this and have people just to watch their faces like, oh my God, this is amazing. It tastes so good. It feels good to you. It feels good that you can share that with other people. Mm-hmm. And, you know, some people get kind of weird about game. Oh, well, I heard it. I heard it's tough. I heard it's gamey. I heard it's weird, but everybody likes salsa. That's everybody true. likes you know, and it's, it's interesting to see something that's really palatable to them. And there's no weird controversy or uncomfortable feelings that they have. Yeah. That's an easy conversation. Yeah. Mm -hmm. It's something it's it's like, Oh no, look, this is just a zucchini. Look at that. It's just a zucchini, but a different color. It's a yellow zucchini or a, they call them a gray zucchini, which is like a really light color, you know? Mm -hmm. Oh, it's just, but a different color. Yes. This is a tomato, even though it's green and red stripes, like it's just a tomato. And to have them kind of have that exposure of like, oh, it looks a little bit different, but it's the same thing. Mm-hmm. I feel like can pave the way of like, well, I mean, this elk burger just looks like a burger. Maybe I'll try it. Oh, it tastes fine. You know, it's it helps open up the perspectives of what you can find that's out of the norm out there and how good something might be. Yeah, I think society has gotten so comfortable with things being a certain way. And that's mm-hmm. not how it used to be. It used to be whatever... Mm-hmm you got, you got, whatever Mm -hmm. you grew, you grew. And some years you had seed left over, some years you didn't, some years you had, you borrowed seed. Strawberry in December, like there was no strawberry in December. There was no broccoli in the middle of summer. You know, there was, there was very limited vegetables in general in the winter. And that was just a seasonal, like seasonal availability has just completely gone out the window. Yeah. And it leaves, I feel like it leaves people. That's one of the things that drew me to homesteading was being able to truly appreciate what you had when you had it, because it's not going to always be there. Like I know that by the end of summer, and if anyone out there has grown zucchini, you know, by the end of summer, you're like, please someone for the love of God, take the zucchini. <laughs> because I have, I have too many and I have 47 more growing and mm-hmm. I just need Take it, take it, take it, take it, take it. And, but at the same time in the winter time, you find yourself going, oh, you know, I miss, I miss having zucchini. I'm looking forward to having zucchini. And then you do it all over again. Mm -hmm. Yep. You do it all over again and maybe add some extra plants and then you go, why did I do this? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. The, the seasonal availability thing and being able to have a true appreciation, like a strawberry becomes so much more special when you know you can only have it in the summer. Yeah, it's true. We've got we've got blackberries right now growing and they are about to they're red, about to turn black and the kids keep like I just they stand beside the plants and I think their mouths are watering and they can't wait for it to turn black because they remember from last year. And mm-hmm. and there's that value and it's like what you were saying that the ability to use something during that time frame, but then not have access to it for a while, it makes everything worth the turnaround. Like your your yeah. venison kind of like you can out you can run out at a certain point in time if you don't have enough for the whole year. We luckily enough right. have enough for the whole year this year, but it's when you get low you start going, okay, it's, it's, it's time to go hunting again. It's time to fill the freezer back up. It's, um, Mm -hmm. it's those kind of things that take you out of hunting season and put you Mm -hmm. into the, the, the hunting lifestyle or the gardening lifestyle. Like it becomes The the really primal side of all of that, of like, the, the ebb and flow. Yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And it creates, it's just, it makes it a year long thing versus mm-hmm. breaking it up into one season here, one season there. I think my family has realized it's not just your season anymore. It, yeah. It's it, not. It isn't. It has become way much more than that. And, 
and we, I don't think we've bought, uh, there have been a couple of times that I've bought beef from the butcher to do certain Mm -hmm. meals and things like that. But for the most part, it's not a grocery store buy. It's not like I walk past the meat and unless I'm buying bacon, it's not really something I don't really pass by the grocery store meats anymore. And right. There's a sense of pride to that. (laughs) Yeah. And you know, and when you really like going back to the taking control over the food that you have, it's taking, you know, you're taking control over all of those things and just having that self-assuredness to go like, I know that that meat was not raised. It might taste all right, but I know that it's not going to have the nutrient density or, you know, it's not, it's, it might have this whole other host of problems or that Mm -hmm. animal didn't live a very good life and it might not be. Yeah, it might, Mm -hmm. that's something I want to support and you have the skills and you have done the work to empower yourself to be able to have that choice to not make that like to, to be able to have that choice, Mm -hmm. you know, and it's, it's a privilege that I think a lot of people who don't do that don't appreciate. Like we, you know, we work really hard to have that privilege and it's, um, yeah, it's really nice, but I, I'm the same way. Like I, I don't buy meat in the store anymore. Um, the last couple of years, the last two years, we haven't been hugely successful. Uh, like it's successful at all uh, hunting uh, <laughs> because, well, we have, you know, we have a two year old. And so that was yeah. really, you know, it's, you're splitting your time and that's, and it, you're, we're trying to figure out, we, we've brought him on our deer and elk trips every single time we've gone. We've never gone hunting without our child, even when he was six months old, mm-hmm. but requires one person to be with him at all times. And so it's, it's been a learning curve for sure. But, um, but we also are fortunate enough, my husband's best friend from, from high school, they own a grass fed beef operation in another part of central Washington. Mm -hmm. And so we, we buy beef that's grass fed, grass finished, antibiotic free, and, you know, we go to their house because they're our friends and we've seen these cows and they're just happy and out in the open. And it's the, probably the closest thing to a wild cow you could eat. Yeah. <laughs> they are, yeah, they are. So, and, and we, so we buy beef from them each year to help supplement and. Well, and you're supporting um, them in their yeah, lifestyle as well. Mm-hmm. And it's a very small operation too. Like they have, I think they have 10, they do 10 cows a year. So it's, it's really small and those animals just get loved on and paid such close attention to. And it's, and you're literally helping put food into that family's mouth, right? You know, that family with their kids and their parents, and that's, you're feeding, you're feeding people and it's a much smaller relationship. And that's something that, you know, sometimes you can't do it all in a home bed situation. Or sometimes like, you you know, we talked about with Evan flow, sometimes you don't have a lucky year Mm -hmm. with hunting. And so can't provide that meat, but knowing that you also are not going to be able to be fully sustained on the vegetables you grow, finding the next best thing. Like if, if you were to raise a cow yourself, find a small time farmer who would do it the way you would do it. Mm-hmm. Yep. And even though it's a bigger upfront cost overall, it's not, I buy the grass fed beef I buy is not really any, it's much cheaper than grass-fed beef in a store per pound. Oh yeah, definitely. Yeah. And it's, it's much, it's much cheaper and you get a whole bunch of it. So it's a bigger upfront cost, but overall it doesn't cost any more. No, I think that that, that also like your lifestyle of homesteading, of sustainable living, it creates mm-hmm. a community around you. It Even yeah. if like I live in a subdivision, so I have a smaller garden, but I can subsidize with a garden, you know, a couple of streets over that does one of those programs where you can be a part of it and you can get a basket a week. Oh, that's cool. Those like the CSAs or yeah. whatever they call them. So you can still, even if you can't grow your own, you can still support a farmer who does by mm-hmm. being a part of their community, bringing them into your community, um, support what they're doing. And honestly, the years that I did that, I we got so many different vegetables. <laughs> 
that I had Thank you. Oh, yeah. Before. Never. And I had to kind of investigate how to use it. And it was it was very experimental and fun. And the kids would be like, what is this? And I said, I don't know. Let's try it. Uh, yeah. But and those- there's something but where that a kid can relate to is like, oh, like because kids view their parents as kind of an all seeing authority of like, yeah, mom already knows. Dad knows. They know they're going to tell us it's good because they already know. But to have them see you be like, full of wonder yeah. and say, I don't know. Let's try it together. Let's see what it tastes like. You tell me, I'll tell you. And then they get inspired mm-hmm. to try too because it's a new adventure that you guys are on together. Yes. And for one, as I think an older kid can feel, yeah, they have a little bit of standing and they feel like, oh, we're on equal footing and having the same experience as opposed to just like parent and the kid. And, uh, that's so tiring. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and so getting- they get to- Getting them involved in that, whether it tastes good or, hey, what would you do different? What spice mm-hmm. would you add? What, how would you roast it? What next do you think time? this would be good? Yes. You know, like, yeah. Like, I remember when I first tried garlic scapes. Um, the thing that we equated it to is like a garlic green bean. Like, if you had a green bean that you cooked in butter and garlic and yeah. just a green bean and escape a garlic scape. You don't have to add anything to it. Maybe a little salt and a little oil to cook it in, like or butter or tallow or whatever you whatever fat you cook in. But you just chop them up and they taste green and fresh like a green bean and garlicky. And you think, wow. And you can equate that to like, this is like a garlic green bean. And people bite it and they go, wow, it is just like a garlic green bean. Mm-hmm. What is going on? Mm-hmm. So it's, it's to kind of try the new things and see, you know, how would you serve it? What would you do it with? What do you think it tastes like? What do you think it's similar to? You know, and it, it sparks conversation. Yeah. It sparks conversation. It builds a creative palette. It builds the ability to not need chicken nuggets and macaroni and cheese for every meal. (laughs) It, you know, every child, well, every person growing up goes through phases with their, their uh, taste buds and things change every so couple of months. Like we yeah. have constantly told our kids, okay, you have to try one bite. If you don't like it, we'll try it again in a month and see if your taste buds have changed. And it mm-hmm. is, it's that, that thought process of not getting locked in on, well, I only like these things. It right. is the excitement and the anticipation of, am I gonna yes not I'm yeah. not gonna like it but am I gonna like it yep it's a different mindset and if you grow it they are more likely to try it than if you and pick if, it up at the it, store and if they're involved in the growing in any way even just like you said with your kids out staring at the blackberries willing them to turn black <laughs> yeah. when they're just like I stare longer they'll be ready mm-hmm. but getting them involved in that process and showing them things and teaching them things and getting their hands in the dirt or on the plant or smelling the smells they feel like they have a little bit of ownership over that process yes and so it gets them excited to enjoy the fruits of that labor as well even if you know they didn't really labor that much <laughs> <laughs> it's just the involvement it's it it's allowing them to be a part of it versus which is hard but i, I you know it's it's allowing them to be a part of it mm-hmm. and taking what they have that day and accepting it like i know that my two-year-old goes out into the garden and of course loves the strawberries and he's excited for the tomatoes to start getting ready but he, he'll look and he goes garden snack mm-hmm. everything in the snack and he'll grab a piece of lettuce and take a bite of it and say yum love garden snack and after a couple seconds of chewing it spits it back out and go Ugh, tenor no light <laughs> and then he'll take another bite and say garden snack but he's just he's so excited about it mm-hmm. that he can't help himself from grabbing it and taking a bite even though he's going to spit it out every time that's hilarious <laughs> it's, it's so cool to just see on such a unadulterated level of like, he has no other inputs except I'm excited about this and I'm going to eat it. Like he doesn't know what he does, isn't supposed to like, or doesn't like, he just, he wants to try it all. And that's cool to see 
anything, but especially this homesteading thing for me through the eyes of your child. Yeah, that's got to be great. Well, what goals Mm -hmm. have you got for this year? Oh, oh my goodness. Um, Well, so my goals for the homestead, I think uh, we're still working on the establishment. I always feel like we're still in the establishment phase of things. So we're still growing and we're still expanding our garden. Um, I think long-term I would really like to, on the vegetable side, provide about three quarters of our yearly Mm -hmm. vegetable cake, vegetable and fruit. And then, um, between purchasing beef and hunting, and then we also raise chickens, um, I know our, we currently raise chickens next year. We're adding quail for meat. And oh, then the year awesome. after so we're going to do, we're going to do the poultry side of things. Um, because water, we don't, we didn't pick the best piece of property for agricultural endeavors. <laughs> There's, um, not a ton of water I got out you. there, yeah. um, but poultry doesn't, has the low of all livestock. It has a really low water requirement. So, um, and we don't, we do some bird hunting, but not a ton. We're mm-hmm. more, we gravitate towards the big game side. Um, so we have plenty of red meat in our freezer every year, but being able to take ownership over the poultry side of things and chickens and turkeys and quail and have just higher quality of those things. That will great. add so a great, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, so we're going to be doing our first chicken butchering this year. Um, first chicken butchering and getting ready to add the quail enclosure and then ramping up on the vegetables. Um, this year I'm going to do, last year, the last two years I've just done, you know, everyone kind of has the idea of you plant in the spring and you harvest in the summer and then you're kind of done and you rest until next year. Um but you've got cold weather plants that you can put in the the broccoli and, and the Brussels sprouts and the kale and the, all of those kind of things that can last a little bit longer into the winter. Yeah. So what we're going to be doing in about two weeks, basically in about a week or two, when when we can pull all of our garlic out of the bed and start to let that dry, um, I'm going to be starting an inordinate um, number of broccolis, cauliflowers, and Brussels sprouts, so that once all of once the freezes sit set in, I'm going to have a bunch of plant transplants to put out into the garden. Oh, cool! Um, mm-hmm. A really big, like I'm thinking, we'll probably have forty each of those plants. That's awesome. <laughs> I will have to see if it if it'll all fit, but we're gonna have, we're gonna have a whole bunch of those plants that we're gonna try and do one big harvest before winter so that we can put a bunch in the freezer. But um, so we're really going to be experimenting with an extensive like fall garden or winter garden um, this year. So that's gonna be one of my big goals for the homestead. Um, along with the chicken butchering, that's going to be really interesting. We're not sure if we're going to rent equipment or if in my head, I'm like, well, we're going to be doing this all the time. So we might as well make the investment mm-hmm. and buy it because it's, it's just going to be some, and anything it's good for any kind of bird processing. So we could process our wild game birds that way too, instead of having, could you imagine, instead of having to pluck a pheasant or a grouse, throw it in a plucker. That'd and be, just, that'd be, so much easier. <laughs> It'd be so much easier. <laughs> it would be so much easier. So, and, it, and it, I think in my head, I'm like, well, if we own the equipment and the processing of the wild birds was easier, maybe we'd be more inclined to put a little more time into the upland bird and, you know, those type of birds that we don't prioritize as yeah. much. So it took us, it took us about two years. It took us one year of all four of us hunting to realize, holy cow, we can't afford this if we utilize a processor. That it Mm -hmm. will, it within the first three harvest, it paid for itself. And, And so that, like you said, it's that upfront cost that you kind of, but at the end yeah, of the season, right. we had eight deer this year that would have cost a whole lot of money to process. Yeah. So it's probably 
what, like $200 a deer, I, I would think. Here, roughly. it's around 100 So that's still, I mean, that's, that's almost $1,000 that we will. Yeah. That's a lot of money. And to be able to do it ourselves allowed us the freedom to share it and be able to donate to and that we processed and butchered and all of that and were able to give to people. And that felt good to be able to do and, without it coming out of our pockets. And you get that essential skill of being able to break it down. I tell Heck people, yeah. all the, I'm my husband says, he's like, you're, you're kind of a homesteader, but you're kind of a little bit of a doomsday prepper as well. So, <laughs> <laughs> homesteading because you think the zombie apocalypse is right around the corner and I'm just like well you know when the zombies come and knocking you're going to be really happy you married me that's all I'm saying so <laughs> I love it when you when you confront those conversations you get the machismo guys they're like oh yeah you know I could just if I needed to eat I could go shoot a deer I'm like and all of the hunters out there scoff together <laughs> oh sure bud go ahead go uh-huh. hunt it uh-huh. but go hunt that deer and you go get it but at the same time, those people also think, well, yeah, you'd shoot a deer, right? You shoot it. And they'd shoot the deer and it'd be down on the ground. Now what? And then they go, well, now what? Mm-hmm. You yeah. know, I'm not just field dressing, but it's like, okay, yeah, you could skin it, but are you going to puncture the guts? <laughs> and yeah. are you going to have to figure out how to deal that? Did you shoot it there? You know, are you going to be able to identify which organs are the ones you're supposed to eat and which ones you probably mm-hmm. shouldn't, mm-hmm. you know? And then once you get it home, it's like, well, I guess we just, are you going to barbecue a giant deer leg over a fire and just hack away at it for a couple of days? Or what are you going to do? Like, yeah. how are you going to save it? How are you going to, yeah. to preserve it? What all, it doesn't just stop mm. with the shot. And, and that's, I, yeah. You, you've got to do your due diligence and respect that animal more than that. And I I think that that's uh, mm-hmm. getting back to the basics of that is is kind of it's really important to us. I know it is to you. So I appreciate that. Thanks. Yeah, I, I, I appreciate it, too. And I'm that's I, I've loved listening to your points of view and you know, listening to your podcast. Cause I just feel like, Oh man, this is someone I can truly relate to and yeah. do a lot of stuff the same way or have the same philosophies on things, which is awesome. It, <laughs> it, for me too. I'm like, these women are so awesome. You included every single person, men included who have been on the podcast, who have had voices in it are valuable. And, mm-hmm. and so I appreciate it. I'd like for people to be able to follow you. So how can they, how can they tell everybody how they can follow you? Um, So I have a kind of a, my, I guess my, I call it my personal Instagram, but you see on that Instagram, I think I do a little bit more hunting stuff on that one. Um, I do my hunting stuff. My, I'm an avid rock climber as well, but if you go to my personal Instagram, it's Steph.outdoors. Um, And you'll see, you'll probably see a lot of my little boy who's super cute, (laughs) but that one's kind of the full spectrum of me where you'll see CrossFit and rock climbing and hunting and vacations, Mm -hmm. but but you'll see that kind of thing. But if you want, if people are really interested in the homestead side, um, ours is, our hashtag is the Herit Homestead. This Herit with two, H-A-R-R-O-T-T. So the Herit Homestead, all one word is our kind of tag. Well, I love it. And I hope that you guys go and follow Stephanie. And I truly, I appreciate you today. Thank you so much. I had so much fun. I know I told you I was so nervous <laughs> coming on to do this, but it was, it was so fun and you're so easy to talk to and it, you made it just easy the whole time. So thank you so much for having me on. I had a blast. You're welcome.